Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Welcome to the Audible presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman for a little New Year's Day or actually January 2nd bowl recap and look ahead to the national championship game. Um, unfortunately, it comes after a very dark night in football. Uh, Bruce, normally you would watch the Rose Bowl and then the Sugar Bowl would come on. This year, they moved the Sugar Bowl because of Monday night football. And it was a for me, as a um, sometimes Bengals fan, um, it was a rare Monday night football game that I was going to make a point to sit down and watch. And and unfortunately, um, what we ended up seeing was just horrible. DeMar Hamlin from the Buffalo Bills makes a tackle, gets up, and immediately collapses. And um, we are told, we couldn't see it, but we were told they were giving him CPR. The game is delayed for an hour. It's eventually post, uh, postponed, suspended. Um, and we find out very late last night, even on the West Coast late, that he had ha- gone into cardiac arrest. They had done CPR on the field, restored his heartbeat. But as of us recording this, he is uh, in critical condition, uh, had been sedated. And obviously just a horrible thing for everybody to experience in particular, obviously, First of all, his family, and then obviously his teammates and the people on the field. And it was just a very controversial night, it felt like, in terms of the way the NFL handled it. But, um, you know, the most important thing is him. And, I mean, first of all, I assume you've never seen anything like that on a football field. I have not. I mean, it was, you know, I was watching the game with my eight-year-old son and who loves everything about football. And he was confused. And I'll be honest, I was too, because the first – when you watch the replay, um, you know, there was a collision with T Higgins and, you know, he kind of slung T Higgins down, looked like almost in momentum. And, and because we're so used to now thinking helmet to helmet all the time, that was the first, you know, like you're looking for it. And then he got up and he completely wobbled and, and collapsed. And it was just kind of heartbreaking to me to see the total panic and terror that you'd see of the reaction of the players out there. And look, I think, you know, as you're watching this, you, you know, you're in uncharted waters because, you know, we've seen plenty of, of horrific injuries where somebody breaks a leg or is not moving after they've taken, you know, their, and, and I, there was a play that happened. I'm trying to remember which game it was because we've seen a bunch of them where it might have been on a kickoff where a player just – both guys just got just a huge impact, went down. You're like, God, I hope somebody's not concussed. And I think um, – God, I think it was in the USC game because the USC player, I think, got 
got uh, ejected for targeting. And it was just one of those where it was a changing levels thing. I'm not saying, you know, like we're, we're used to that now. And we become numb, I think, to it largely. This was different um, because it's a different kind of situation. Now, we, I remember reading last night, you know, Chris Pronger, the you know, former great defenseman in the NHL, had taken a slap shot in the chest. And from, and again, you can go down these rabbit holes too easily on social media about what people, even doctors, legitimate doctors, think might have happened. Um, but it's just not something, you know, you see in the NFL and then you can, the more you, you kind of read, you hear about certain situations that may have happened in different levels of sports. Um, it's just heartbreaking. Like I, I, whether the NFL, you know, the, Hey, you know, Joe Buck saying, you know, there, there's going to be five minute warm up or whatever it was going to be. I mean, that's a, I mean, for now that's, that's really, a, as you said, it's, it's more about DeMar Hamlin. We all, you know, remember him as a terrific defensive back at Pitt. There's been some amazing stories that have come to light about him um, and the work he did, especially with trying to help out children in his area of Pittsburgh. I mean, the, the you know, the, the one of the good things, and there's many, many ugly things of social media that you can see on there, but one of the good things was you know, his Chasing M's Foundation community toy drive there. Um, the initial goal was $2,500. As I'm looking at it right now, it's three. It's over 3.9 million has been raised and whatever. This is probably a little more than 12 hours. So, um, you know, our heart goes out to everybody uh, around him. And just, I think it's, you know, look, I, I give credit to, uh, especially Scott Van Pelt and Ryan Clark, I thought, they were in a really tricky spot where it's live TV and you're not preparing. And I think for so many of us, whether you were a diehard NFL fan or you're a casual NFL fan like yourself, I think just to tune in and watch that and to see how to pr and process what is going on, um, you know, the way they talk through it, certainly Ryan Clark's perspective, because at one point my wife and I were watching this and she came from, you know, a TV news background. You're thinking about like, okay, you know, the, the sports people, sometimes you wonder, do they have the, the depth to talk about certain things like this when it's real tragedy? But in, in this regard, I think they're the ideal people to talk about it, especially, you know, you had Booger McFarland talk about it early. Then you had Ryan Clark talk about it in, you know, for seemingly hours um, because his perspective is way different. I don't, you know, like, yes, I think, you know, I saw Aaron Taylor, my own colleague at CBS brought, said, you know, I really think that they should reach out to some to the mental health expert, talk about what the players are feeling and how to get people through this kind of what it's like. And to be honest, like, I, you know, neither of us ever played in the NFL or even close to it. So to, to see that and, you know, at one point, I think Ryan Clark said, you know, he's 24 years old at the time and never you know, those guys, man, to be NFL players, I mean, it's almost like they think they're indestructible. They probably do. And then to see that um, is such a jolt to reality. Um, it's just a very sobering thing. And it's not something that people, I, I, I just don't think they can turn the page on it anytime soon. I mean, I think to, to be a football player and also even to be a football fan requires you to compartmentalize uh, in a way 
that is kind of scary at times. I mean, not many games I've seen where a guy gets knocked out and the, the cart comes out, he's concussed clearly, you know, the players all gather around the cart, then the cart drives away and it's back to the game. And, and to be able to compartmentalize that has always kind of astounded me. And then if you think too long about the violence in football, it becomes a lot harder to enjoy football. So we just, for the most part, I think we just kind of don't. Uh, but this was one that rose to the level where you just couldn't do that. Um, obviously, almost, at least on Twitter, almost from immediately, people wanted to cancel the game. And this is a game that, a huge game, people have been looking forward to it, and it just wasn't even a thought anymore. So, um, Well, I also think it's worth noting that it's not just people, it was actual NFL players and people who have been involved in the game were, were some of the most vocal on my timeline. It's one thing for... People who aren't, it's another thing for the people who are actually involved in it, I think, to, to speak out on it, I think was um, carried a lot more weight because they know what that world is like much better than, you know, people who may not be invested in it like that. Well, obviously, we will continue to think about and pray for DeMar Hamlin, and um, hopefully we get some really good news here soon. As far as college football, uh, on New Year's Day, and I call it that even though it's January 2nd, it's pretty hard to upstage the Rose Bowl usually. But the Cotton Bowl was the game of the day, clearly. Uh, and I remember I told you on the podcast the other night, I said, I think Vegas knows something. USC is only a two-point favorite. And I picked Tulane on the site. But obviously at 45-30 with four minutes left, I had written off the green wave. But they come back, dramatic win. Um, just the amount of stuff that had to go their way in those last few minutes from getting the safety to get the ball back to, draw, uh, you know, a botched uh, kick return, you know, as well. Mm -hmm. on USC. So, Michael, that... you know, several Michael Pratt having to convert a fourth down that as people brought, you know, Chris Vanini or a great group of five writer pointed out in his column, you know, same situation in, in their opener against Oklahoma last year, he came up a yard short this time he got it. Um, just a, a phenomenal game and and what it signified. Tulane with that win now owns the single biggest season turnaround from two and ten to twelve and two. And obviously, you know, anytime a group of five program wins one of these near six bowls, it's a big deal. But you know, Tulane does not have the recent football history that, for example, UCF did or even Houston did. I mean, this came out of complete nowhere. So what a remarkable run for Willie Fritz and Tulane. And I think a lot of people are probably watching Tulane for the first time. And the thing that stood out is, oh, man, do they have a lot of speed? Yeah, I'm glad you said that. I, I definitely agree with that. That that jumped out off the screen. It reminded me a lot, quite honestly, of of Memphis. Like if you look in the NFL, there's a bunch of Memphis backs who are really dynamic players. And, you know, as, as you said, you watched Ty J Spears run all over USC. You know, at one point, RG3 is doing the broadcast and there's a gear he hits and he's talking about it almost like you can hear him in it. You know, RG3 obviously was an elite uh, hurdler, before, you know, before he was a great quarterback talking about some of the, it's almost like the, the training stuff. It's like, pick your knees up, just like the things that I'm sure he had in his head from the time he was a little kid at that, where Spears obviously 
I mean, when you're on a field and you're running away from guys like that, I mean, what an what an, a dynamic player he is. Um, not long after the game, he announced he's going on to the NFL and he'll be a fun player to watch there. But, you know, we had a story earlier on the site uh, on The Athletic, Mike Kuchard did, which really had great insight into what Tulane does, where it's really not even the offensive coordinator is the guy behind the offense. It's Slade Nagel, the tight ends coach. And for people who watch Tulane for the first time, go back and read that story because I think if if you're really interested in how how you know plays come together and how an offense works, it'll give you a really good perspective on to why that you know what really helped spark this dramatic turnaround um, for the Green Wave this year. Spears had a just ridiculous game. Um, he ran 17 times for 205 yards and four touchdowns, including a 62 yarder. But, you know, he almost, he had a fumble late in the game that at the time it looked like, Oh man, this guy, for what a great game he had, he may have just cost his team their last chance to win. They were, it was 42 30 at that point when he fumbled, but they held USC to a field goal and they came back from there. Now, if you're a USC fan, you know, going into it, I would have said, if USC loses to Lane in the Cotton Bowl after they'd almost made the playoff, you know, I don't think it's the uh, it was almost um, it would have almost been expected for them to lay an egg. But to this extent, Tulane over the course of the entire game averaged 10.4 yards per play, 10.4 yards per play group of five team or not. I mean, if that was Georgia and you gave up 10.4 yards per play for an entire game, that would be embarrassing. And so. That raises the question for Lincoln Riley. You know, Alex Grinch has been with him since Oklahoma. He brought him with him from Oklahoma. He's been a big believer in him. I don't I don't see how you bring him back at this point. Their defense was just horrific all season and then ended with that debacle. I think what what uh, they have to really figure out there because it was horrific. It was last year was the worst defense USC's ever had. This year was the only thing that made it a little better was they were getting turnovers and the turnovers saved them in the beginning half of the season. But I want to go through pretty much from mid season. They had that game where they, they at Utah, where Utah rallies to beat them 562 yards. Then they play at Arizona. Arizona actually has some firepower, 543 yards, but then Cal, not a good offense. 469. Colorado is awful. We're going to throw that out. That was 259. At UCLA, 513. Then Notre Dame, which actually was one of their better performances, but they gave up still 408 yards. And then the last two, Utah, shredded 533. And then yesterday, 539. And I think the thing that stands out to me the most is this is a really, really bad tackling team. You and I were both in the building at the Pac-12 title game where they are really bad in the secondary, right? I, I, you know, it's like people will talk about, you know, they have Tui Tuli Pelotu who makes a lot of plays in the D line, and but they're really bad in the secondary. They're they're terrible at linebacker, and they've been really really bad in at defensive back for a while. I don't want to hear about what stars some of these guys had coming in. Um, they just get exposed, and I think. Right now, and I'll say this, I've been a believer in Alex Grinch because I saw what he did for Washington State when Mike Leach hired him. He did a terrific job there. 
at Oklahoma, they were awful when he got there. They got a little better, but it, they didn't make dramatic improvement there. Um, and I felt like having done a bunch of their games, what you would hear a lot was, you know, the, it was a team that was just waiting for bad stuff to happen. And they were constantly seemingly trying to work on a, you know, getting bigger and longer, which is something that, you know, had to happen through recruiting and B fix the mindset of, Oh God, here we go again. What I thought happened against Utah the second time. And I think happened yesterday is the, Oh God, here we go again. And how do they fix that? Now that to me, there's a, there's a potentially a bigger question even than, than beyond just, fixing the tackling and the mentality it is you know look Lincoln Riot one of the one of the things that I think is is you know people will talk about as well no one's ever won a national title with an air raid well you're practicing against it and that's how you know that's the identity of the program you know we'll see if obviously Sonny Sonny Dykes and TCU can change that Monday night but I think to a large degree, you look, look at the teams that have the best defenses statistically in the country. Most of them are in the Big Ten. Most of them are in the Big Ten, and most of them have major offensive issues, if you look at it. And I think that is a question. If you look at the, like, I'll go through the best defenses right now, and I'll, I'll get to my point on this. All right. Air Force is one. Iowa is two. Illinois is three. Iowa State is four. James Madison five, Michigan, Michigan is six. Um, and then you have Wisconsin is 10, you know, more than half, one, two, three, half of the, of the big 10 is in the top 10 statistically on defense. Now we, Iowa has been a punchline for a long time, but like all, almost everybody with the exception of Michigan on there has, you know, has really struggled offensively. And I think, it's not a coincidence. Like, I think it is really, really hard with the exception of right now where George is at. And we've seen Georgia give up, you know, 40 plus when they play some firepower teams. But for the most part, it is hard to have a really, really good defense with, you know, statistically when you have a really explosive offense. Cause I think, how do you practice managing both? I mean, it's, you're not going to, sh- you're not going to sh- see too many. You may have a team like Houston which had a great defense statistically in 2021, but they had one of the worst defenses in 22. Um, so I, I think it's an interesting thing that like, I think this is more than just, okay, you know, does if you are Lincoln Riley, I think you have to, you know, evaluate, and which I'm sure he's going to do, but you have to evaluate how do we practice? How do we prepare? Because one of the things I heard a lot last year at USC from coaches who were frustrated was, they felt like Clay Helton let the offense and Graham Harrell kind of run how they practiced. And they, and they attributed that to a lot of their issues they had on defense. That's interesting. Um, and yeah, you mentioned USC having the worst defense last year, they were 112th in the country in yards per play. And this year they fell to 124th and we knew going into the season, they would not be good because of the personnel, but that's just embarrassing. So that has been a thing for years. These air raid coaches, they can never seemingly have both the really prolific offense and a good defense. And so TCU this year is an interesting repudiation of that. Um, Their defense, especially over the second half of the season, has been great. 
um, they're physical. It's everything that Sunny Dykes' Cal teams and SMU teams, for that matter, were not. So wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. You can't say their defense has been great. They're ranked 64th in the country. That's not well. Great. No, it wasn't. That's not great. Let's let's be honest. I mean, they, well, it's they a lot better well. than USC. Let's put it that but way. But I know. But you, let's let's give respect to the word great. You can't say that's been great. You're not 64th in the country and be great. Well, the difference between them and USC is they got better as the season went on. You know, when you remember when the first committee rankings came out and they flat out said, you know, we're we're concerned that they have all they they fall in these deep holes and they have to come back. Their you know insinuation that their defense wasn't that good. You know, over that last month of the season, they shut down Texas. Um, they they had uh, Baylor got five, over five hundred yards on them. Wow, you went from the biggest TCU proponent in no, the world no, the other night. To be, to... I'm trying to be realistic, though. You're saying great, and I'm like, I saw them at the end of the year give up over 500 yards to Baylor. And even the other night, I'm you know, Michigan came out statistically looking like they did pretty well. Um, yeah, I think they had over 500 too. I again, I I think my point that you're I, you're, like you're you first, can I just stop for a second? You're using yeah. an outdated statistic, like 450, 500 yards. Like that doesn't. I'm matter looking now. at. But I'm looking at yards per play on this. Okay, yards per play is the important one. Yards per um, play, they're at 64th in the country, Stu. Okay. So here's I'd rather be 64th than 124th. I would agree. I would agree. But here's that's point. been the problem over the years. Like his Cal defenses were ranked in the 100s every year. Yeah, I, I think you're missing the point a little on this, though. It's like, I think it's hard to have anybody, you know, who is in the top 15 in both consistently. It just, like I said, Houston had a, had a great defense last year. You know, there was a year where app state had a top five defense, but it's, I think it's hard to have like a, a sustained, you know, the thing I would, I would bring up, and this is the, again, I will take the the L as the Grinch defender on this here, literally, but like, Guys don't forget how to coach, right? I mean, he was as good a defensive coordinator as there was when he was at Washington State. Again, opposite of Mike Leach coaching at practice. Um, I don't know necessarily why they are so bad at tackling. I feel like that is a fundamental thing. You know who was really bad at tackling early in the year was Nebraska. They didn't practice live tackling for years, I heard, for a long time at least. And to undo that, you can't just all of a sudden have like tackling at a Tuesday practice once and then expect it to get better, you know? So I think there's like a bigger issue, you know, there's a bigger discussion on this and I don't think people necessarily have the answers because if I said to you, who do you think is a, is a terrific defensive coordinator? You know, I would say Phil Parker and Jim Leonard, but I also know that, like, I know what the other side of that looks like. Right. That's a complementary you know, system. And so I think it's, it's you know, it, it's interesting. Like, like Brent Venables was an awful defensive coordinator at the end at Oklahoma, apparently. And then he went to Clemson and was really, really good. Right. Um, it, it's just... You know, it, it's just something that is, I mean, I would look even at, at, you know, Baylor was really good a year ago on defense and they had Ron Roberts, who's one of the smartest defensive minds in all of football and obviously Dave Aranda. 
and they weren't in the top 50 this year. And they had a lot of guys back on the D line and they had a lot of guys back in the front seven. You know, it's just, I think, I think it's a lot more complicated of a discussion than complex discussion than I think, Oh, they gave up this many yards. It's like, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious what the answers are. Yeah, me too. Remember he went through this at Oklahoma too. Um, I think a lot of people thought he should fire Mike Stoops after his first season, after the way it ended in that Rose bowl where Georgia ran down, ran it for a gazillion yards and he held off and then he ended up having to fire him in the middle of the season the next year. So, you know, who had, you know, by the way, you know, had a top five defense this year, Manny Diaz, Manny Diaz, who people in Texas. Thank you for that segue. Enough. Thank you for that segue. Fast enough. Top five defense, by the way, yep. they gave up, I don't know, 400 yards against Michigan on the ground. You know, it's just like, well, I, I thought know. Penn state on, on in the Rose bowl was its best self. Uh, in the biggest game of the season. And I told you, you asked me the other, last week, how, why are you picking Penn state? And I couldn't come up with a good X's and O's reason. All I said was, I just feel like it's Sean Clifford is due. He has to go out on a high note. And he sure did. I mean, he had his best game in a year and a half. Nick Singleton, you know, had a great, it was basically all of the guys on Penn state who, um, you know, Audrey Snyder, our, our Penn state writer, put it best. It was like kind of, a great send-off for their seniors like Clifford and a nice breakout momentum uh, game for some of their younger players. Um, and, you know, I feel awful for Cam Rising. To, to, you know, it's one, it's just a, you know, how many te- guys get the chance to play in a Rose Bowl back-to-back and he gets knocked out of both games back-to-back. And it sounds like this injury is, is fairly serious. So um, I don't know that if Cam Rising, I mean, the way things were going, I'm not, going to say if cam rising doesn't get hurt that utah ends up winning the game by any means maybe it's a little little more down to the wire I just think but it was penn, part, penn state's that's day part of, that's part yeah. of the game i mean like if if caleb williams doesn't hurt his leg do you think utah wins that game right um, no, i just think it was penn game. state was was you know after after having come up short not waiting going against michigan way short against like the two best teams they played this year uh on the on the you know the the stage of the rose bowl um what's, you got the what's, best cra- of them. what's crazy to me is penn state hit two plays of over 85 yards when obviously the singleton run and then the 87 yard pass play <laughs> utah had not given up a play of 80 yards or more in the previous five years and penn state got two in probably real time about an hour yeah. um it's it's kind of nuts how that broke like that um so let's talk about the Nittany Lions here. So this is a team finish 11 and two, albeit their two losses were against the two teams that matter the most in the conference. Um, they, they won almost all the games by double digits, by the way, the only one that they didn't was at Purdue in the opener. Um, I think they won by four or five. So they're going to finish in the top 10 for the fourth time in the past seven years. Um, I looked it up that it, they'd only been in the top 10 three times in the previous 19 years. I mean, that's a, they have recruiting momentum. The people I've talked to inside the program this season, love, love Drew Aller. They think he has the magic. It, he has a big arm. He's big and athletic. We like the young running backs. Obviously they got a lot of playmakers, young playmakers on defense. 
Um, I may be segueing twice here because, you know, <laughs> Michigan is in an interesting situation. We'll get to the, our Jim Harbaugh story in a minute. But if you're a Penn State fan, um, are you looking at it going, you know what? Ohio State's got to replace C.J. Stroud, and they got to replace, you know, a handful of other guys. And they have not, albeit they, they gave a valiant performance against Georgia the other night. They don't, you know, they don't seem like they're as strong as they did, you know, 16 months ago. If I'm Penn State, am I like, you know what, next year could be our year? Yeah, this is the window. I mean, it seems like what happened was they went through um, a pretty rough couple of years there and had to reset the program, had this phenomenal recruiting class that has all the guys we're talking about right now who will be going into their second seasons. Um, they, 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 there was like a three-year period there where they lost to Ohio State like three years in a row by one point. And it was, you know, they're knocking on the door, they're knocking on the door, and they didn't get there. And it does feel like next year would be the window to do that. So let's talk about Harbaugh. You tell tell us the story you and a, and a couple of our other colleagues had um, as we think about the off uh, what might happen here in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. So on uh, Monday morning, we started hearing some rumblings. Different people at the athletic, um, you know, our, our Nicole Auerbach, Austin Meek, you know, hearing more stuff. Uh, I had talked to a source close to Harbaugh who said, I think it's a done deal. If he gets an offer, um, he's going to leave and, and go to the NFL. And, um, you know, again, these are people I trust and feel like they have a good sense of the real situation there. Now I know a handful of Michigan fans I saw in response that would go, Oh, here we go again. Same thing last year. Well, what we reported last year, what I reported last year was, um, Jim Harbaugh, if given the opportunity, they thought was going to leave to the NFL. And it's like, well, what happened? Jim Harbaugh wanted to leave so bad, he, he went on signing day, no less, spent a day with the Minnesota Vikings, and then came back. He didn't come back because he turned down the job. He came back because they offered the job to Kevin O'Connell, and Harbaugh came back. And look, he had an amazing year with Michigan. They crushed Ohio State again and did it in Columbus. They obviously didn't finish the year the way they wanted. But I think if you're Jim Harbaugh, there was nothing fluky about what happened in 2022. And I don't what I what I don't get kind of here if you're the NFL is and look, this isn't a Jim Harbaugh versus Kevin O'Connell. Kevin O'Connell's done a terrific job for the Vikings, but like Jim Harbaugh is not Urban Meyer. And quite honestly, he's not Matt Rule or he's not almost anybody else who's come from college. Jim Harbaugh was a fantastic NFL coach. He took over a San Francisco 49ers team that had not had a winning season in eight years. And in year one, he got him to the NFC title game. In year two, he got him to the Super Bowl. In year three, he got him back to the NFC title game. In the year four, he went eight and eight. And then he went back to his alma mater. Like the guy is 44 and 19 all time in the NFL. And that's in the NFL. It ain't in Conference USA. And it's not playing, you know, the difference in talent level in the NFL is very tight. It is, there are no um, Northwesterns in the NFL. There are no Rutgers in the NFL. And if they're, you know, and the, the bad teams, you know, it's like they can get better pretty fast. So I'm surprised that more, you know, somebody at the NFL did not pull the trigger on Jim Harbaugh. I get 
why his personality may not sit great with some people because he's, he's unpredictable and he can be at times just different than almost anybody else they know. But, but the guy clearly knows what he's doing when it comes to running a football program. And it'll be interesting to see. I don't think anything would happen for the next week is until the NFL um, regular season ends. We'll see what kind of movement there is. Certainly the Broncos have been discussed. Harbaugh spent a lot of time as a player with the Colts. That has a vacancy, or we expect it to have a vacancy. Obviously, Jeff Saturday is sitting there at the interim, but they've already made one coaching change. Uh, I'm Panthers. interested to see his next move. Panthers. Maybe the, the Panthers one is interesting just from this regard. They went to a college guy and it did not work out at all. But like I said, Jim Harbaugh is different than Matt Rule had never been a head coach in the NFL, whereas Jim Harbaugh has a better track record in the NFL than probably. 75% of the guys who have currently have NFL head coaching jobs right now. Yeah. I mean, to anybody and a Michigan fan or not, who would say like, why is this a story? Jim Harbaugh made it a story when, like you said, he was so clearly out the door to the Vikings last year. I mean, it, to the point where it was a bit, the, the stunner wasn't that he went and interviewed. It was that he didn't get the job. Um, so clearly you're going to go through another off season of this. Now, he, People can say if he gets the offer, he's gone. We don't know if he's going to get the offer. Um, we will see. But I think that this will be a, an offseason storyline with him. Um, for, for you know, if, it, if he doesn't get it this year, it's still going to be a storyline next year and, and until we get to the point where, you know, like all interest has died off. So, um, again, that's you talk about Penn State having an opportunity. I mean, I'll be honest. All right, so this week I'm starting to do – I'm curious to get your opinion on something, and it's going to be a curveball because we didn't talk about this ahead of time. I'm starting to do my research for my early top 25. They'll go out the morning after the championship game. And for several years, it's been – the challenge is not the top. I mean, it gets pretty murky after a certain point, but you knew you were going to have Alabama, Ohio State, Georgia, Clemson, some order, right? Um, this year – I mean, we don't know who's going to win yet Monday night, but I'll tell you right now, Georgia will probably be my number one. We know TCU has had a great season. They're losing Max Duggan. If, Are they definitely losing Max Duggan? Max Duggan? I, I, I believe he he indicated that. Unless he changes his mind, I believe he indicated that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't Well, I mean, so you said Ohio State losing C.J. Stroud. Um, obviously, it's been having issues on defense for two years in a row now. They'll probably lose both offensive tackles. They're Michigan gonna... has uncertainty. We don't know who Alabama's quarterback is going to be. Um, what will we saw Jalen Monroe did not inspire confidence. Jalen who, who? What? Jalen who? Milrow. Okay, they said Navarro. Okay, <laughs> who would be your number two right now? Um, that is a tough one. It really is. I'd have to think about it for a second. I mean, if USC didn't didn't um, you know embarrass itself yesterday, like losing a double digit lead late, I would say probably USC. Um, they're going to get Dorian Singer to probably to replace Jordan Addison and Caleb's back. You have to think that they're going to, you know, they're losing some guys on defense, but it's a it's a crappy defense to begin with. Um, That's the thing. I can't really say i think they're going to be a top four team you know like without, I, without knowing what's going to happen on defense you know a team that i don't know where you'll have them and i don't know if i would say all the way up to number two but i think is going to be really fun to watch is washington yep michael Penix jr had an amazing year 
Um, they have a lot of firepower back. I think ZTF's coming back. We'll see. You know, they have some guys in the in the front seven who are good players, and I just think he's got a lot to build on there. Um, you know, but I, I can't sit there and and look and say, you know, outside of Alabama, I don't know who you're looking at on the other side with much with you know, LSU will have some guys back, but I don't I just don't think that they're gonna make that big of a jump. LSU is pretty intriguing to me. LSU is pretty intriguing to me, and not this was before they uh, beat up on on a on a carcass of a, a Purdue team because they had a lot of freshmen who were key players on that team this year. Jaden Daniels is coming back. Um, they'll probably have another active transfer portal year, but I don't know. It's it's the year where I don't feel as comfortable as I normally like. Up until this year, Alabama could have lost anybody, and I would say, "Well, it's Nick Saban; they'll reload." This this season gives me a little bit of a hesitation there. LSU did beat them. Would it be that crazy that LSU is ahead of them again next year? Don't know. Um, a team that's interesting, uh, Florida State, um, is is has had you would have you would consider to have them too. No, this is the thing. There are a lot of teams that that team, LSU, Washington, Oregon, I throw in the mix. These are top 10 teams, but somebody's got to be number two and number three. And TC will be very high up. I'm not sure yet where yet, but, you know, what I'm saying is that of the usual suspects, they all have big questions. You know, there's there's reason to be there's frankly more reason to be skeptical than optimistic about Alabama, certainly about Clemson, who we talked about last time. Unfortunately for your preseason, early preseason, I think it's. I don't want to, I'm not saying don't do it, but I feel like it's less um, at this time of year, less reliable because there's just so much uncertainty that's going to happen with portal stuff Yep. that, you know, portal guys who are deciding to come back who won't, you know, that kind of thing. I just think that like, and I'm not saying wait two months because I know you'll update it and that's the beauty of the internet, but um I think it's just a, a harder read to see what's going to happen when, you know, at this time last year, um, I think there was a bunch of guys we didn't know where they were going to be that ended up in different places. Well, I was thinking back, and I mean, the portal has changed this exercise completely. But last year, you didn't have the portal window. And so my recollection is at the time of that January 10th or whatever it was, there hadn't been that many players who had, who had not just entered the portal, but committed to a new school. Um, you've got a ton of those already this year. So it'll be more difficult than usual. One more real quick. There were only four games on New Year's Day. I think we've mentioned uh, all of them except Mississippi State. They go out and they and they pay a very fitting tribute to Mike Leach. They beat Illinois in the ReliaQuest Bowl. And with one of the all-time backdoor covers on the recovered fumble on the lateral, um, I it was it was cool to see them do. I mean, I hadn't even thought about it before the game that of all the stadiums that they ended up getting picked to play in a bowl game is the one with the pirate ship in it. I know. I, I was watching the broadcast. I didn't think of it either. Um, I, you know, obviously I paid close attention to all the tributes that were going around, but just then that aspect of it, I thought was you know couldn't have gotten much sweeter from a stamp from that kind of standpoint. And look, I think it's a ton of credit to those players to to push through what they did. Honestly. It's a lot of credit. I give a lot of credit to that staff because, you know, the not so great story behind the scenes is a bunch of those coaches and staffers know that they're not getting retained. 
Yeah. And, you know, Steve Spurrier Jr. is the play caller. I don't know if it's out now, but um, he was is not expected to be brought back, you know. And so that is really hard when you know that you had you had a good season, your team won the Egg Bowl. And then tragically, the man who hired you, who's who's been such a big part of your life, passes away. And then you know that for you're not probably getting kept. I mean, that's that's a real jolt, I think, for a lot of those guys. And I mean, so credit to the, to those guys, especially who and they're probably in there, uh, those folks, because I know that there's not just there's some women behind the scenes on the staff as well, who I think are not getting retained. Let's get to some emails. As always, you can send those to the audible pod at gmail.com. Um, actually, let's start with Trey Collins, who listened to the episode the other night. Uh, hi, Bruce and Stu. I was listening to the brief conversation about Texas and how they haven't built any optimism, and you generally took a pessimistic outlook for the program in Sark. Texas played a total of four out-of-conference games, including their bowl, and three of those were against 10-plus win teams, Bama, UTSA, and Washington, and two of those will finish the season squarely in the top 10. Because the Big 12 did not have any layup games this year, Texas only played one true cupcake in ULM. In fact, most advanced scheduling metrics have Texas with a top three or higher strength of schedule. So here's the question. If Texas had an easier schedule and was nine and three instead of eight and five, would you feel differently about the team in the turnaround? Um, the nine and three, I guess he maybe says instead of it. Let's say 10, not 10. If it's 10 and three, here's the thing, though. I mean, they played they played Washington in a bowl game. You know, you're if you're if you had a pretty good year, you're probably going to play a pretty good team in, in a bowl game right now. Getting a super heavyweight like Alabama, honestly, I think the most impressive thing that Texas did all year was in a loss yep. um, against Alabama in that game, you know? Um, so, I don't know. I, I mean, to answer Trey's question, would I feel differently? Maybe a little. I... I, I- I would say probably, yeah, if they were 10 and three, I mean, there's a big difference between 10 and three and eight and five, but like, again, I, the, the thing that I was most impressed by happened in one of those losses. Yeah. Like, so that's the yeah. thing, right? Like I, I admit it, like if it's, if their record was 10 and three, I'd probably be who, by the way, Sark has never had a double digit win season as a head coach. So if they were 10 and three, I think we would be, you know, and maybe it's too surface level. We would have been sucked into that a little bit. By the way, they did beat Big 12 champion Kansas State on the road, 34-27. I'll be lying if I said I remember much about that game, but that was a, you know, the 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 signature feat of their season. But like you said, if you take the Alabama, if you pretend the Alabama game never happened and they played an FCS team that week instead, um, you'd be like, congratulations for going 10 and three. That's a reason for optimism. But I feel like they actually proved themselves more in that game or gave more reason for hope in that game than they did even in the Kansas State game. Yeah. Um, Questions from the Kansas Andrew. State game, by the way, Bijan Robinson ran for 209 yards. My outlook for Texas would be so different if Bijan Robinson was coming back. Same, same. Um, or Rashawn Johnson, even, who was such a leader for them. I mean, losing both of those guys who are high character guys, I think will not be easy to replace. Um, Andrew in Fairfax, not a word on your last podcast about the Irish victory over South Carolina, which was an incredibly entertaining game. Stu, was this because you screwed up yet another Irish pick? Explain yourself, Stu. 
Did I pick South Carolina? <laughs> I can't even I remember. remember. That I was so remember. long ago. Like when we recorded it, I remember it felt like the Orange Bowl had happened five days ago and it was the day before. Yeah, it was. It was one of many uh, entertaining bowl games. I mean, in those those couple days leading up to the playoff, right, you had the crazy Kansas-Arkansas game. You had the crazy Sun Bowl. Um, the Oklahoma-Florida State game went down to the wire. And then the Notre Dame-South Carolina game. The interesting thing about that one is that, you know, it was kind of a – um, springboard opportunity for Tyler Buckner, but we already know, or we already strongly suspect that Sam Hartman is coming in. So I don't know that he is going to be springboarding that into next season. You know, I was curious about this year. Notre Dame season was, and you look, it's a first year of a first year head coach or, you know, of a new head coach. Um, and you had quarterback issues. You don't have a deep receiver room to begin with, but if you look at it, it was such a roller coaster season where you had actually impressive against uh, Ohio State keeping it close. Then you lose to Marshall. Now, Marshall's a good group of five, but it's still, you shouldn't be losing to Marshall. Then they go to UNC and whip them. Then they somehow lose to Stanford, which is one of the worst um, power fives in the country, probably outside of Colorado, maybe the worst. Um, and then they crush Clemson. You know, and it was just a, re re a really back and forth year. And I think, um, you know, I, like if I was a Notre Dame fan, I'd be very encouraged by how, um, you know, Marcus Freeman and that staff have recruited. I think that bodes well. Um, you know, it's, it's like it just got off to such a, you know, it's better it went this way than the opposite, meaning. You know, they lost their first two games, which was his really turned out to be his first three games as a head coach. And then they won a couple, then they lost to Stanford. But after that Stanford game, I feel like you saw a lot of reasons for optimism if you're a Notre Dame fan. And I think with the way they're recruiting, I think if the fact that they beat South Carolina and look, South Carolina finished their year strong with the, you know, with certainly a Clemson and Tennessee and Tennessee romp. So if I was a Notre Dame fan, I'd feel pretty good about the direction of the program right now. Yeah, I think you have to write off the Marshall game and the Stanford. You have to write off some of those early debacles as a brand new head coach, a very young brand new head coach learning on the job. At the end of the day, yeah, nine and four is a step back from what they were doing under Brian Kelly, but they're going to finish as probably a top 15 team. Uh, they beat a top 20 SEC team in a bowl game. Um, and then obviously the, the way the recruiting is going. So Generally speaking, I think I would, I would feel pretty good if I'm a Notre Dame fan. By the way, I'd also feel pretty good if I'm a South Carolina fan. Um, they, the way they ended the season, knocking off, well, first of all, you're just killing uh, Tennessee and then beating your rival. And then, um, you know, very competitive down to the wire in this game. You know, I think Shane, fan, fan, South Carolina fans and their faith in Shane Beamer has got to be awfully high right now as well. So, um, yeah, very entertaining game um, in a week, like I said, in a week full of uh, entertaining bowl games, including, I mean, the, C the CFP between the CFP doubleheader and the Tulane USC game. This was a unusually entertaining um, New Year's Six Bowl slate. Okay, I have a question for you, Stu. Yeah. Is this question from Tom in Atlanta, Eric Single's dad? <laughs> we should ask him. 
Yes. Tom, by the way, if you're the guy who loaned your son a, uh, a laptop for me to use during the national title game, I really, I, I greatly appreciated that. Um, so as I said, this question is from Tom Single in Atlanta. We don't know if you're our editor's dad or brother or cousin or not, but if you are, um, thanks again. And if you're not, thanks for the question. Stu and Bruce, Sam Hartman and Devin Leary, arguably two of the best quarterbacks in the ACC, both entered the transfer portal with Leary already landing at an SEC school and Hartman probably following in his footsteps. Uh, no, we think Hartman is going to end up at Notre Dame, not Florida or Alabama. Um, but obviously we'll see. Do you think their reason for leaving are to show that they can replicate their success against tougher competition? Or B, to pursue NIL money that is not available to them at their current schools? If the answer is B, and I will tell you now, Stu, at least in the case of Sam Hartman, I am convinced it is B. What does this say about the future competitiveness of the ACC, which is already dealing with a significant disadvantage in TV money? Thanks, Tom Single, Atlanta, Georgia. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, obviously, only those players would know exactly what they were thinking. Um but like you said, I we certainly know about the NIL component with Sam Hartman. I've also heard a number attached to Devin Leary in Kentucky. I feel like these two guys fit in this. Um, they're in this tier of guys who could go to the NFL, but they're probably not going to be drafted very high. So they could actually make more money staying and playing another year of college than they would if they got drafted in like the sixth round. And we're not even a guarantee to make the team. So, you know, I also think it's not I wouldn't lump Devin Leary in the same pool as Sam Hartman from this regard. I think if Devin Leary is healthy, his arm is considered, you know, stronger. It's just he's coming off a big injury. I don't know if he's even going to be able to be part at spring practice. So the idea that Devin Leary could go through the draft process um, like that is probably not realistic. But the question is, if that's the case, why is he leaving instead of coming back and playing his final year for NC State? You know, I think in some of this, too, as you have staff changes, or coordinator changes, you don't at, at, at Wake Forest. I mean, in the case of Sam Hartman, I think you have a guy who is probably going to be getting way more NIL money. Look, if, if Sam Hartman can get low seven figures someplace else, I imagine the people at Wake Forest who I know really think highly of him understand that, you know, and there's, I mean, at that point, I don't know how you turn that down if you're him. I, I also think, it, you know, to get back to Tom's question about the ACC, like Miami is in the ACC. They are a big player in NIL. Florida State is in the ACC. I don't think they're going to sit on the sidelines with NIL either. There are a bunch of there are some schools in the ACC that are going to be very very active in NIL more than others. I mean, honestly, it's I don't think that's entirely unique to the ACC. The Pac-12 has that issue also. UCLA and U Utah are two of the most successful teams in the conference. The latter actually won the conference. They are not operating at the NIL level the way Oregon is. It's just they're not. They're very different, and I don't think that is you can say, oh, it's because the conference money is this. It's it's not entirely that. Um, UCLA is going to get a lot of money in the Big Ten. I don't think it's going to, I don't think it's going to dramatically change their NIL approach right now. Florida um, State, by the way, has um, 
if you see some of the transfers they've gotten already, like how active they were in the portal in this this window, you know, I've been told their their um, collective has stepped it up in a huge way um, since probably over the last few months. So, uh, yeah, you can't really lump those two things together, right? I mean, the the NIL money is not coming directly from the athletic department; it's coming from boosters. And whether you're in a conference that gets uh, 50 million a year in TV money or 20 million a year in TV money, at the end of the day, the teams, that, the, the programs that are going to see, um, basically, you're, it's going to come down how, how A, how, how well-funded your collective is, and B, how directly are they willing to, because you're basically all of these collectives are skirting the rules. So how directly involved, how willing are they to um, play in the gray, as they say, when it comes to the rules about using NIL as inducements for recruits? I think most major players in college football now realize like there's we're only hurting ourselves to try to play by the book because nobody's ever going to stop this and our competitors are taking advantage of it but yeah definitely a sobering moment for these programs who are power five programs both those teams have been top 25 teams recently and at the end of the day their star quarterbacks would rather go elsewhere to play their final season of college football all right I think that's it. Yeah. Um, you can send your questions to the audiblepod at gmail.com. Our next episode will be after the Georgia TCU national title game in LA. Hey, Stu, one last thing before we jump off. By the way, the, we mentioned the GoFundMe for uh, DeMar Hamlin, mm-hmm. the Chasing M's Foundation. Just in the time we, we've been taping this, it's gone over, well over $4 million. That's amazing. It was at um, one point. I believe it's at 1.2 million uh, when I went to sleep last night. So it is, it's continues to just, and by the way, the goal, you know, on every GoFundMe, there's a goal. I think the goal was like $25,000. So no, no, the goal was $2,500. (laughs) $2,500. Great work, everybody. We'll see you next time.